Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey, everybody. We're certainly glad you're with us. Mike and Mark here. You know, we always love talking with our guest on this episode. It's Mark Loretta. He's done a lot in this game. He's a player. He's an all-star coach, been in the front office, and he's a former teammate of yours, Mark. Yeah, also uh, with the Milwaukee Brewers and the San Diego Padres. And for Mark Loretta and how to describe him, he was the guy that was just constant. Uh, And why I say constant is that he was a pro. He understood what his role was. And he went through a lot, Mike. He was an everyday player. Then he became a bench player because of injuries. But this was also a guy, and you've heard this a lot, there's guys that are built for being on the bench, being able to manage possibly, also coaching. But he had the versatility in his playing career, but also after his playing career, he was a coach and also in the front office. And that doesn't surprise anyone that's been around a guy like Mark Loretta. 15 seasons in the big leagues, Mark, more than 1,700 games. When you look back on your career, what do you consider to be your signature moment, the moment that comes to mind when you look back at all you've accomplished? Well, Mike, it's got to be Patriots Day 2006. And for those of people who don't know what Patriots Day is, it's the day in Boston when they run the Boston Marathon and they play the Red Sox game. It's always a home game. They play it at, I think it's 1030 or 11 o'clock start real early in the morning uh, by baseball standards and to try and get it done before the, the end of the, uh, of the, uh, marathon. So, you know, that's in a mid to late April, I believe. Um, and I had been a free agent or excuse me, I'd been traded from San Diego to Boston in the off season. And I had gotten there and, and, um, the team was playing well, but I got off to a lousy start, kind of, kind of a typical, I was a slow starter most of my career. And I was hitting like, you know, right around 200, I'll never forget uh, Terry Francona coming up to me and said, hey, Lo, are you, you worried about your, your, your batting average or something? I said, well, you know, I'd like to be hitting better. And he goes, well, I'm not. So, you know, big vote of confidence from him. Tito was great. And uh, so anyway, uh, Patriots Day, we're down three to one in the ninth. Two outs. I'm hitting second. Euclid is up. Euclid beats out an infield single barely. Uh, and I come up. Uh, excuse me, it's three to two, we're down by one. So he beats it out, two men on first two outs, facing Eddie Gordado, who ironically I made my major league debut off of. Wow. Uh, in Minnesota when he was there, I was with the Brewers and I pinch hit against him, struck out. Um, and uh, so anyway, Eddie Gordado gets to 2-0 and, uh, you know, I wasn't a big power hitter, but I hit one over the green monster and it was just a, a great feeling of, of First of all, I didn't have many walk-off home runs, just a couple, but to do it in Boston on Patriots Day when I had started out pretty slow there uh, and my dad was there in in, in the stands, he happened to be in town. It was a really, really fun memory. Yeah, Mark, you know what? Growing up in Boston myself, uh, you, you understood how important the marathon day was and the Red Sox coinciding with that and moving that start time, which is very rare and you don't see that in baseball too many times, but they do that because how special that is for the city of Boston. Uh, interesting aspect when you start looking at that whole scenario. Because you said you, you faced Eddie Guadardo, which you made your debut on. Uh, this was a guy that was everyday Eddie, they called him. But he also was dominant. He had 140 saves in a four-year period, which is is pretty good back then. Um, and you're facing him. And 
like you said, you weren't uh, going full tilt. You didn't have a home run on the year going into that at bat. And then you crank it out. Um, and and it, it was interesting when you watch that video, uh, the analyst, Jerry Remy, was actually surprised as well. You could almost hear that, you know, Mark Loretta uh, uh, was, the, was the hero. And he was almost shocked about it. What was your feeling going around those bases? Because it, it, it's a dog pile when you get to home plate. Yeah, it was it was kind of a sense of relief, but also elation. You know, you, you kind of, you know, uh, not having had a home run and not hitting a lot of home runs. It's like you forget, OK, geez, the game's over. We just won. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, going around, um, you know, just seeing seeing the teammates empty out of the dugout and, and a real classy move by the Red Sox. So by the time I got in, into the locker room, they already had a picture that had been developed that was taken from the right field. Uh, excuse me, left field foul pole looking down of me, you know, just when I'm about to cross home plate. And they had that already printed out on my chair. Really cool. I have it framed. I'm looking at it right now in, in my office. It's I'm coming in Veritex there and Big Poppy and, you know, Manny, that whole group was, was pretty cool. Yeah, you mentioned those names too. Uh, this is a team uh, under Terry Francona, as you mentioned, the manager, uh, was had expectations uh, of winning. Um, you're, you're Manning second base, but big poppy, Manny Ramirez, Kurt Schilling's on that team. Mike Lowell, Trot Nixon, Jason Veritek, as you mentioned, John Lester. But also, uh, John Lester also, uh, which I thought was interesting. Cause when you see those videos, I love seeing, uh, who's on the team and you forget certain names. Uh, current manager, Alex Cora was also on that team. Uh, what was that like? Uh, and what did that do for the team moving forward? Yeah, I think, you know, we were we were off to a pretty good start and, and, and big expectations. I remember going into spring training and, and Theo Epstein, uh, who was the, the GM at the time, just saying, hey, we have one goal. That's to win the World Series. And, and a lot of teams say that. But, you know, you get to Boston and, and the way the team was positioned, they, they meant it. Uh, so and it was, you know, personally, it was great to contribute, uh, you know, on that, get, get my kind of season going there. But, yeah, I, you know, somebody asked me the other day, what was my favorite place to play in my career I played for five different teams and you know I always come back to, to that one year in Boston I only spent a year there but but playing in Fenway Park for the Red Sox it's like a playoff game every night as you know swings and uh, I just had a great time and, and unfortunately they had a guy named Dustin Pedroia who they they, they figured was going to be pretty good so <laughs> but uh, yeah I, I loved my year there and the family did as well. What was the reaction with your dad? I know he, he, you mentioned he was in the stands. What was that reaction and uh, that conversation after the game? Oh, it was great. You know, and, and Lim living in California, they, they only made a certain number of games. Um, <clears throat> but, um, in fact, my, my mom was there as well. And Hillary and the kids, they were going to go out and kind of watch the end of the marathon. You know, kind of a special day. And so by the time you know, the end of the marathon was people already had signs up, you know, Red Sox win and, and the news kind of started out that it was, it came out, there was a walk-off home run and it, and it was me that hit it. So they kind of find out, found out through the crowd in the marathon, which was neat. But yeah. My dad, uh, my dad, uh, Gordon Eads, who's a big time legendary writer for the Boston Globe, um, you know, found out my dad was there and, and, and found him and interviewed him. And, and there's a big article that I have framed as well about that and his reaction. So real special. That was back in 2006. It seems like it wasn't that long ago, but when you get the calendar out, you're like, wow, it's been a handful of years for sure. I want to crank the calendar back, though, even further, Low, uh, to your Major League debut in 1995. That was with the Brewers a couple of years after you were drafted in the seventh round. 
Do you remember getting the call and who told you? Tell us a little bit of the story behind that and who you contacted right away. Yeah, so I was playing uh, in uh, New Orleans for AAA for the for the uh, Milwaukee Brewers at the time. Chris Bando was my manager. His brother Sal was the GM of, of the of the, Mar- or the Brewers at that time. And I remember uh, Chris calling me in uh, and saying, "Hey, you know, um, you're going up in September. This is about a week to go, or so before uh, the roster's expanded." And of course, you know, that's just a dream scenario, dream moment obviously call my parents right away. Um, you know, call Hillary back. We were on the road. So I, you know, was kind of, you know, on the old dial up, there were no cell phones at this point. So it was like, <laughs> get, get my, you know, AT&T calling card out and punching the 16 different numbers you have to push in to get a landline. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, a flood of emotions, obviously, but, um, you know, and, and so I get to Milwaukee and we, um, I don't play for the first couple of games and I pinch hit in, in the Metrodome against Eddie Gordado struck out. Then I come home, uh, get another pinch hit, uh, and off of Kenny Rogers, the gambler, the lefty got a base hit. And then the next game, uh, we were actually in Detroit. I, I, uh, that I got a start. Um, my first about I hit a home run. So I was two for three and this was off Jose Lima, Lima time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and then, and then I went, uh, my next 0 for 20. So at one point, <laughs> I was 2 for 3, 2 for 23. And then ended up 13 for 50 that that first month. So I made a little bit of a rally. But uh, it was, yeah, I had an 0 for 20 my first my first stint there. Lo, can, can you take us into uh, when you got called up and you're walking into a major league locker room, uh, what that meant to you and, and what did you reflect on when you went through those moments? Yeah, you know, it was good to see. So I... You know, I've been in Major League camp uh, that spring. So you have some familiarity, obviously, with the coaches and and some of the players and whatnot. But, um, you know, always remember kind of Phil Garner pulling me in and and congratulating me. He's he's always been a mentor of mine, first Major League manager. I I actually talked to him fairly recently. And, uh, you you know, so, yeah, it's just a moment of like, you know, it's the same game, but it, it, it seems completely different. You know, the, the club clubhouses are much nicer. Um, you know, obviously the hotels are unbelievable. We still had roommates back then. So I, I did have a roommate in the big leagues for a while, but, you know, it was awesome. Lo, we all know that uh, our identity really comes from the teammates we play with and uh, have the ability to have those connections. Any one of those guys uh, on the Milwaukee Brewers when you first started stick out in your mind? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about Kevin Seitzer, but but as we got into uh, a couple years into Milwaukee, uh, we made a big trade where, um, yeah, I can't remember the exact specifics, but Jeremy Burnett's came over from the Indians. Mm-hmm. And we, we just kind of hit it off. You know, we had a lot of interests in common. Uh, his wife and my wife got along. Uh, you know, we played together for, for a number of years. I know he was a teammate of your swings, but yeah. the guy that still lives here locally in San Diego, we, we keep in touch with. Um, you know, and then and then a, uh, Paul Bacco came to the uh, to the Brewers at one point. Um, we, we you know I still keep in touch with him. He's he's a great friend. Um, so so lucky to have you know a lot of great teammates like yourself uh, throughout the years. And that, that's right. That's that's what you miss more than anything is the interaction with those guys. I think it's so important uh, for listeners to understand that uh, yeah, you spend a lot of time in the locker room on the field. 
it's the competitive nature, but that connection off the field, having those dinners, uh, being able to have uh, certain aspects away from the field to get you away from baseball is pretty important. And you had that with Burnitz, didn't you? I did. I certainly did. And, and you're right. You know, when you get into a city at a reasonable hour on the road and, and you have a team dinner or, or at least, you know, six, seven, eight guys go out and, and have a nice meal. And that, those are times that are that are just great. Uh, and then just the banter back and forth in the locker room. I mean, just, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day about how you got to kind of check your emotions at the door. Everybody sort of rags on each other. And that's because they they, they care and they, and they like you. But it's it is just so fun and funny, uh, some of the stuff that comes out of there. It's incredible. You know, not a lot of guys uh, get a chance to know team ownership very well. I mean, typically from what we hear from you guys is you're doing your job. You'll deal with them maybe through your agent or on rare occasion. Uh, but it sounds like from all we've read, you got a chance to know Bud Selig pretty well in Milwaukee. What was your relationship dynamic like? Yeah, so Bud, Bud was just transitioning to the commissioner's office uh, when when I was kind of getting to Milwaukee, um, and so I, I got to know um, his daughter and, and son-in-law, you know, Wendy Selig and, and Laurel Preeb, um, you know, pretty well. In fact, they they both came they were came to our wedding, um, and so also got to know Bud through through the players' association and the collective bargaining agreements that we worked on. I was I was a player rep, et cetera, and. And so got to know Bud. Uh, and then last year, it was great. Um, you know, he's got an office still in Milwaukee. And I was with the Cubs. And, and we had we had lunch and spent a couple hours together. Uh, yeah, but, you know, Bud, um, I think, did a lot of great things for the game. Um, if you look at his career, sort of where he came from, and, and to make it, you know, into being the commissioner and, and to, to add the wild card and to, to do a lot of different things in the game. Uh, I've got a lot of respect for Bud uh, and, uh, you know, happy he's still going strong. Yeah, it's amazing uh, the impact that he had on the game of baseball. Uh, Lo, let's get into that uh, playing career because you started off and uh, you're a 300 hitter. I mean, everyone knew the consistency that you were bringing, also the versatility. Uh, but in, in the year 2000, um, you're hitting 305 in the first two months of the season and you foul a ball off your foot, and you go through the injury that really changed a lot, um, even went through uh, multiple injuries after that. Can you speak to the challenges of when things are going well and you you have to have that first sense of adversity, and you went through that because of injury? Speak to uh, what that was and what that was like in your career. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that up, because that, that's right. When I, I came up to the Brewers, and I never was really – you know, just an everyday player. I wasn't going to be just, you know, the second baseman or the third baseman. I came in and, and played a lot of different positions, like you mentioned. But when Davey Lopes came on and, and became manager in, in uh, going into the 2000 season, he came to me right away and said, hey, you know, you're going to be my shortstop, you know, every day. Uh, you've got, you've played all over, but I want your, your batting lineup every day. And, and things were going great. You know, April and May started off well and then, and then broke my foot, as you mentioned, and that that took a long time to heal. I was out almost three months. Uh, and during that time, Jose Hernandez kind of emerged as, as a star. Uh, so when I came back, I really didn't have that, that starting spot again uh, in Milwaukee and uh, had to kind of, you know, battle through. I, I, I also tore my thumb ligament the next spring training. And so I had that series of three or four years where I was, where I was hurt. And not until 2002, right at the end of 2002, when I was traded to, um, to Houston, 
did I kind of, you know, resurrect what I felt, resurrect my career. I went to Houston and, and played a lot that, that September and did well. And then that kind of led to me signing with the Padres. And then, and then my career kind of was back on track after that. Interesting that you mentioned that trade uh, from Milwaukee to Houston. You had to uh, make a little bit of a change. And why I say that is sometimes you realize uh, I am what I am. I like uh, hitting the ball where it's pitched, as you mentioned with Kevin Seitzer, uh, him telling you that. Uh, you you felt like you had to pull the ball a little bit more. And it, it's it's not necessarily a mechanical adjustment. It's more mental in my opinion, what did you think uh, was important after that trade and making those adjustments? Well, that, yeah, I started making those adjustments before the trade. You're right. Cause now, now I had a lot of time on my hands where I wasn't playing every day, uh, coming off of injury, et cetera. And, and yeah, I, I sort of broke down my swing, my approach and said, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good at hitting the ball where it's pitched, but I, I don't hit for a lot of power. I don't drive the ball, you know, particularly well. I didn't have enough power to go opposite field home. I never hit an opposite field, field home run in my career. So I looked at a guy specifically like Rich Aurelia back then in 2002, who was, you know, I think he hit 35 home runs or something like that. And I said, well, you know, I started looking at his, his tape and things and because we're similar size, you know, played a similar position. And I kind of incorporated a couple of his things. You know, my, I, I had my bat was much more straight up on, on setup. I kind of flattened that a little bit. I started hunting pitches, especially ahead in the count, you know, middle in and thinking about pulling it. Uh, and that, that really kind of took me to another level, uh, cause I was able to, to still make that good contact and hit the ball where it's pitched when that was needed. But I also, you know, had the, had the ability to cover that inside pitch because that's, that was the book on me, you know, you know, pound in, pound in, pound in. And I could get my hits that way if I would stay inside of it and kind of fillet the ball. But now, you know, my, my path was better on that inside pitch because of some of the adjustments that I mentioned. And, and then, you know, started pulling the ball with, with some authority, you know, you know, got started hitting some home runs and a lot more doubles. Uh, and that kind of carried into to San Diego and, and where I had my, my best years. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned Rich Aurelia. I, I think that's a great example uh, where he hit in the in the order, uh, having Barry Bonds behind him. Jeff Kent was in that that order. Also, a, a guy that sticks out in my mind because you had that ability to take an inside pitch and go the other way, almost like a Derek Jeter, if our listeners are are, are visually thinking about that. Um, that, to me, is a 300 hitter. So there's a balance when you have to make those decisions. Did it take away from your average? Did you see that it took away from your average? Or did it help you because the confidence must have been through the roof? Yeah, no, I think it enhanced my, my average, uh, you know, because I've, I didn't feel like I had a big hole anymore. You know, pitchers you know, they weren't sure where to, where to go on me. Cause if you, you know, if the, if the book is pound in, pound in, and all of a sudden you're, you're turning on the ball and hitting a double or a home run, it's like, Hey, wait a second, you know, and then maybe that forces them back over the middle or, to, or the other way, which, which was always my strength to hit the ball the other way. So um, yeah. And it, it was, it, it was a big change and it was, it was something that, you know, just made me a much more complete hitter. Lo, uh, your years in San Diego, as you point out, your best perhaps in your career. In, in 04, you make your first of what would be two all-star teams. When you look at the 04 game, when you were with the Padres, 06, uh, you made it when you were with Boston. Was either game particularly meaningful to you, or does one stand out any more than the other? 
Well, they both stand out for different reasons. You know, 2004 was was the the first All Star game, and that's that's almost like like getting called up to the big leagues. So the same kind of phone calls take place. You know, you call your parents, hey, I made the All Star team. You call your wife, I made the All Star team. It's a lot like that first call up. I remember Bruce Bochy and Kevin Towers, you know, pulling me into the office and saying, hey, you know, you were voted in by the players. This was 2004, and that that was real special. Uh, really exciting. Uh, and then t- 2006 was, the, was uh, I started that game, which was another, a different sort of feeling where you get voted in by the fans. And, and that was cool because it was, it was David Ortiz and myself on the right side of the infield. The left side of the infield was Alex Rodriguez and Derek Jeter. So it was Yankees, Red Sox in that, in that starting lineup. And, and uh, it was Pittsburgh. It was, it was, you know, a lot of fun for that reason. Yeah, now you start realizing uh, individual efforts lead to all-star games, but also uh, playoff appearances. You made two of them. Uh, does anything stick out? What was that first one like, and what were the moments that you took uh, from those experiences? Yeah, the first one was with the, with the Padres in 2005. So it had been a while. You know, I, we didn't have many great years in Milwaukee team-wise. You know, I think we, I was there eight years. We never finished above 500, unfortunately. So those was, was kind of lean years there. But yeah, I mean, do it, in 2005 was an interesting season because we won the division 82 and 80. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the strongest divisions, although you can make an argument, you know, we kind of beat each other up. But uh, we won that division going away, even with, with just a two games over 500 record. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was fun. I mean, we ran into the St. Louis Cardinals, had a great team that year, and we got swept uh, in the first round. Uh, so that was a little bit disappointing. But, um, you know, the, to make it my last year as well, 2010 with the Dodgers, you know, that was, that was, that was special. Going home uh, to L.A. Where I, where I had grown up and watched a lot of Dodger games uh, and, and making, making that playoffs and actually having a – walk-off hit in uh in in one of the playoff games that was that was one of my career highlights as well 2005 uh when you're talking about being on a on a postseason team memory serves Sweens was part of that team as well and you guys you guys both talk about the the wonderful dynamic of having great teammates around you and in a playoff atmosphere, I'd imagine that's amplified even more because all of that foxhole grinding mentality it takes to get to the postseason, it finally pays off. You get a chance to celebrate. Uh, some great stories, I'm sure, come out of every clubhouse around playoff time. Any of them jump out to you? Well, that was the first time I'd really ever, you know, pop champagne in a locker room. And that, that is about the most fun you can ever have as a grown-up. You know, I mean, you're just acting like a complete idiot. You got champagne flying everywhere. It's cold on your head. We didn't, we didn't wear goggles back then. These guys wear goggles burning <laughs> your eyes. I'm looking at the picture now in my office where, you know, it's Xavier Nady and Dave Roberts and Mark Sweeney and Linebrink and Hoffie. And, you know, Joe Randa was on that team, I could see. And, you know, just a bunch of great guys that uh, we just had a blast celebrating. Yeah, you, th- you think of the celebration, too. Uh, one thing comes to mind uh, for me, Lo, and I want to remind you this. I know you probably remember it. Um, you're popping the champagne. You're having that celebration. And like you said, it wasn't a dominating team. I think we won 82 or 83 games, as you mentioned. Uh, so it didn't feel like, hey, you know, we're going in and we're, we have certain expectations. We had a grinder mentality. Uh, but I'll remember the celebration because Bruce Bochy was our manager and one of our bench players, Robert Fick, in the celebration, decided not only to pour champagne over Bruce Bochy's head, 
he decided to pour a bottle of Patron over Bochi's head. That was yeah. interesting uh, moving forward, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that, that's right. I, I, I kind of forgot about that. That stung, <laughs> stung the heck out of his eyes, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Fick, Fick was a beauty, wasn't he? I mean, he, yeah, that guy, unbelievable. But, I mean, at least, you know, at least he had a big head to cover there. Uh, <laughs> Takes a lot of Patron. Takes a lot of Patron, yeah. <laughs> into his mouth, but I can just, yeah, what the hell are you doing? Uh, <laughs> hey, Lo, when you look back at it all, you guys collect a lot of fun materials and, and, and souvenirs and memorabilia. Uh, any, I, I can see... Obviously, the listeners can't. You're in your office. You got some jerseys behind you. But is there anything you kept along the way, a baseball card, an autograph, something that has uh, particular significance? I wasn't a big collector uh, in my career. Some guys do that, although um, I, I do have a, a specific memory. So we got we, Hillary and I got married in 1998. And I was thinking about, you know, what what kind of gift can I give my groomsmen? I had a bunch of groomsmen, obviously, in the wedding. And my dad said, well, you know, why don't you do something baseball related, maybe a baseball. And, and that that year was the year that McGuire and Sosa were going through the home run chase. And so and they were both in my in our division at the time. So I, well, I had the idea of sending a, a dozen balls over to Cardinals locker room uh, when McGuire was there and with a little note. And he sent them back. Very nice. And then and then when the Cubs came in, in town, I sent the same dozen over and Sammy signed them. So I had a dozen balls in 1998 signed by McGuire and Sosa, only two on the balls that I that had a little trophy made and, and gave to uh, everybody who stood up in my wedding. So that, that probably wow. was my, and I, and I didn't, I didn't even have enough, to, uh, you know, keep one for myself, but, but those guys still like, you know, the guys that I keep in touch with from, from that group, they still have that, uh, you know, that that baseball and that little kind of case that I made for them. It's, it was pretty special. Yeah, that's a special gift. And cool. uh, uh, you know what, Lo, I, I know you're not a memorabilia guy, but you were uh, a guy that was very consistent. 295 career batting average, almost 300. Um, what was your choice of bat models, and did you stay with that uh, throughout your career? So I – this came from Kevin Seitzer. I, I think I used like an M110 in the minor leagues. And then when I got called up to the big leagues, Kevin Seitzer was using a C271. So a pretty standard model, of, a, a model that's been around for a long time. Uh, and he said, hey, you know, try this out. It was very balanced. It was 33 and a half inch, 32 ounce. So it was, it was on the heavy side, but it was balanced very well. It didn't have a big head. It was kind of, you know, medium all the way around. And then I modified that a little bit. I liked a smaller knob, so I went to what they call C271S, which is S stands for smaller knob. And uh, no pun intended, Mike. Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's, that's a low blow unnecessary. I, I see where you're going there. I was like, really? Hmm. <laughs> is this the Pomeranz S model? <laughs> yeah. So the... Uh, <laughs> occasionally, you know, when, when I, when you would slump or whatever, you'd probably grab a different model and, and, and try something. But uh, I was a C271 guy pretty much all the time. <laughs> well, Lo, uh, you, you take uh, your career, as you mentioned, and you finished with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And now it's time to say, uh, what's next? Uh, you go into the front office um, with the Padres because you knew Jed Hoyer, who was the GM at the time. Uh, with the Padres, what went into the thinking of that, and uh, was that the decision and and uh, area you wanted to be in? So the way that came about is, you know, Jed, Jed had been the GM uh, or the assistant GM in Boston when I was there, and then he got the job in San Diego. And I actually called him. I said, "Hey, you have any interest in signing me as a player?" 
And he kind of chuckled. <laughs> I knew I was done. And he kind of chuckled. He said, uh, no, not really. But he said, hey, if you want to you want to come on and, and, and help me out in the front office, uh, I'd love to have you. And I, I said, ah, that'd be awesome. Uh, and that was a great transition because, uh, you know, it was it gave me the flexibility to be around the family, not having to be in the, in the day to day grind uh, of a season, but also stay connected to baseball. And I, I stayed in that role uh, through three different GMs and, and a couple different ownership groups for, for 10 years until I left um, to coach with the Cubs. Uh, but yeah, no, that's that, that's a really good role, especially for players right after they retired that, that they can you know, spend time with family uh, and but still be connected with the game. You got a preference uh, front office gig versus being in the in the dugout, as you mentioned, as the bench coach there in the Cubs. You've got a little bit of a, a hand in both schools. Do you like one over the other? Um, yeah, I would say I, li- I like the day to day stuff of, of being in uniform probably better, but I like the flexibility of the, uh, of the front office. I mean, when, when you're with a team on a staff, on a coaching staff, you know, you spend more time at the field than the players do. Uh, you're there, you know, at noon and you're leaving at midnight. There's so much information now. And, uh, it, it's a real grind. You know, you don't have the kind of the performance anxiety things you do as a player, but you you spend a ton of time. It's not a real balanced life being in that role in the front office role, particularly if you're, if, if you're, you know, kind of a consultant, uh, you have much more flexibility. You can have your hand in scouting, you can have your hand in player development, et cetera, et cetera, and not be, you know, tied to that relentless major league schedule. Lo, one of your uh, good friends is uh, Brad Osmus, who you played with and, and also, in the front office with the Padres. He had an opportunity to go to Detroit and be the manager and also uh, furthered that after he got let go with Detroit. He was with the Angels. Uh, you guys have a very close relationship. Uh, did you have an opportunity to go with him? And if so, uh, was it the right time or, or how did you figure that one out? Yeah, he, he, he did ask me if I, if I had interest back when he went to the Tigers of, of doing something uh, with the staff. And at that point, uh, I'd only been retired for, for a couple years and uh, it, it didn't make it didn't make a lot of sense family wise. And and um, the, the thing with the Cubs, you know, I didn't know if I would ever, ever coach or get into coaching at all. But it, it was it was kind of the right fit at the right time. It was, you know, my wife, Hillary's from Chicago. Uh, it was a good team. Joe Madden, who I've always been a big fan of and a friend of, you know, asked me to be the bench coach. And, and that just kind of worked out. It was um, and it was a great year. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't you know, make the playoffs or, 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 or do as well as we thought we would. But I'm, I'm glad I experienced it. And, and uh, I don't know if I'll ever coach again or, or, or not, but I, I'm glad I had that experience. Yeah. F- interesting for our listeners. Uh, you go to winter meetings and you got a lot of close friends, including Buddy Black. Uh, Bruce Bochy, the, your your former manager, Trevor Hoffman went to uh, you know those meetings as well. Could you take us and dive us into the dynamics of what happened during the winter meetings, and also that opportunity when you did get that job with Joe Madden with the Cubs? Because for our listeners, uh, Mike Redman was the bench coach for Buddy Black with the Colorado Rockies. He was up for the Orioles job. Brandon Hyde, who is the is the bench coach on the coaching staff of Joe Madden was also up for that job. Went to Brandon Hyde, as we know now, the current manager for the Orioles. What went into the dynamics of 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 that aspect of how you got that opportunity with the Cubs? Yeah, good memory, Sweeney, because that's exactly what happened. We, 
so like you said, the winter meetings, uh, we pick one night, you know, every year uh, to, to meet and have a, have a drink with the group is, you know, Brad and Trevor, myself, Buddy Black, Joe Madden, Bruce Bochy, that kind of group. And we were sitting around uh, and Buddy was saying, hey, like you mentioned, uh, Redmond, I thought might get that Orioles job. And, and if, if he had, I was thinking about reaching out to you to, you know, if you wanted to be my bench coach. And I, and I and he said, what, do you, what would you have thought of that? I said, you know, Buddy, I, 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 if there's anybody I would do it for, it would, it would be you. I, I have that much respect for him and such a great friend. And Joe, Joe was sitting right, right next to us. And he said, you know, I think, I think Brandon Hyde is probably going to get that. My bench coach, you know, he goes, maybe you could be my bench coach. And I go, well, Joe, I would do it for Buddy, but I'd never do it for you. <laughs> and uh, just, just kidding him, just busting his balls. And, 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 and he kind of laughed. But that sort of started the wheels turning where I think Joe went back up to their suite and said, hey, you know, if Brandon does get this job, you know, talking to Jed and Theo, uh, let's, let's, let's look into, you know, Mark Loretta to do it. And so, you know, the next week I get a call from Jed and, uh, he said, Hey, you know, we, we want to ask permission. Um, do you have any interest? And I said, you know, yeah, <laughs> I said, yeah, <laughs> you know, we talked to, to, to Hillary and the kids and, and they were probably more gung ho about it than I was. They thought it was, would be a great opportunity. And then, so uh, talk to Joe, fly back to Chicago, do an interview, and then didn't hear from him for about a week. And we're like, okay, maybe that didn't work out, but they were going through other candidates, et cetera. Uh, and then at the end of the day, you know, Joe called me and said, hey, I'd like you to be the bench coach. And, and it, was, it, was, it was cool. It was, it was a really fun experience. So, you know, you know Joe Madden well, uh, Sweens, and he's, he is a, uh, a great guy to be around, fun guy to be around, great baseball man. Uh, learned a lot from Joe. Joe's first class uh, all the way through, and, and I'm glad you had that opportunity. Can you take us into that first game as a bench coach? What was the uh, nerves like as a player versus uh, the bench coach for the Chicago Cubs? Much less as a coach than a player. I, I guess if you're if you're the manager, you know, I felt like, okay, uh, I, there's nothing I can control at this point. You know, I've done whatever we, we've done with scouting and had meetings and, and all that kind of stuff. Um it was fun. I mean, going, going to work at Wrigley field every day, you know, those, those spring and summer days uh, when it's just beautiful out and it's a packed house, there's, you know, maybe Fenway can rival it, but it is about as good as it gets in the game. And we rented an apartment just within walking distance. Uh, you know, family spent the summer there. We, we had a, we had a blast. It was a lot of fun. You know, 15 seasons in the game as a player. And then as we're talking about your time in the front office, also coaching, uh, you've been considered to be a cerebral guy to those of us who know you as a, a humorist. <laughs> You're like the Mark Twain of our clubhouse. Bring a little genius with your Northwestern education. But it did bring me uh, to this question. That is, as we saw even in the 2020 World Series with the Dodgers and the Rays, analytics is so heavy in this game right now. Uh, how do you see that going as far as perception that it might be changing uh, the experience, not only for the player and for the coaching staffs, front office certainly, but also for the fan. Yeah, great, great point, great question. I, I think as a lot of things happen, things swing so far to one side, the pendulum swings, uh, and, and for a while there, the analytic side has been so heavy. I, I do think it's going to come back, you know, to the middle. Although, you know, this pandemic. You know, a lot of scouts are getting let go. It's going to be some contraction in minor leagues, et cetera. But I think once this all shakes out, I think you're going to see that 
the game needs both uh, analytics and the human element of scouting, of player development, um, things like that. Because you, you know, if this if we were talking about robots, then you could do it all analytically. But we're talking about human beings here. We're talking about different scenarios all the time. So I think the best organizations going forward will be able to blend both. Uh, certainly, I think most teams now have caught up in terms of analytics. There aren't that many differences in terms of what teams are looking at from the data. So I think there's going to be an opportunity to separate with scouting, with player development, with with kind of the old school mentality, if you will. So we'll see what happens. Lo, I know you're not with the Cubs anymore, so uh, uh, technically you're a free agent. Uh, what's next for you? Uh, what's your motivation to whether getting back in the dugout or, as you mentioned, uh, possibly getting into a front office? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's the next couple of years are going to be interesting. I think there's more contraction going on than, than addition, uh, you know, particularly in some of those front office roles. Um, so we'll see. I, I, I'm not um, I, I'm not bored in any, any way. I, I'm not, you know, uh, dying to, to do something um, on a daily basis. So, you know, I've got a lot of other interests outside the game that, that I'm involved with, but you know, we'll see. I'd like to stay involved um, in some capacity. Uh, we'll, we'll see where it takes me. Lo, as always, great to talk to you. Great catching up. Really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.